KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. A lot of people describe squash as physical chess because you have to put the ball in certain areas and think ahead several shots in advance and create situations where you are in an advantage. It's a very cerebral game and it happens very fast. And our guest this week is Nikki Clement. She is the head men's and women's squash coach at Haverford College. And uh, before we start anything, Nikki, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. So as we are taping this right around the holidays, where are you in your season? I mean, obviously, semester, you're between semesters school-wise, but uh, squash-wise, are you about halfway through? This is kind of the, the middle part of the regular season for squash? Yes, you are absolutely right. Um, we started our season at the end of October, and the students uh, just left for um, the break this week. And then they'll be back in three weeks to uh, to do the second half. Let's talk a little bit about squash, the sport itself. I think it is a sport that is on the upswing, but I also think it is a sport that a lot of people aren't familiar with. If you had to explain to me or to somebody the sport of squash, give me the elevator pitch. Sure. So it, first of all, is one of the most fun games in the world. It is played in a court that is 32 feet by uh, 21 feet, and it is played with um, usually one other person. There's singles and doubles, but typically it's singles, one against another person. And there are you have a racket and you have a ball that's uh, about an inch and a half um, in diameter. And it is a rubber, it's rubber and it's very bouncy. And essentially what you're doing is um, you're hitting the ball against the front wall um, and your partner does the same exact thing um, in response. And it's, it's really just uh, the last person to keep the ball in play. Um, and it is a lot of fun uh, when you are a beginner, but the more complicated it gets, the even more fun that it gets. When you say complicated, what do you mean? Um, you know, just being able to control the ball a lot more and being able to do something um, with intention and putting tactics into the game. A lot of people describe squash as physical chess um, because you have to um, put the ball um, in certain areas um, and think ahead several um, shots Um in advance and create situations where you are in an advantage um, or get out of situations when you are on defense. So it's a very cerebral game and it happens very fast. It's very high paced and you're essentially sprinting around a court um, constantly to, you know, reach the next ball. Um, And it's, it's very, uh, you need a lot of um, explosive movement um, and also a lot of, um, hand-eye coordination. Um, so it, it, there's a lot going on. And like I said, the, the more um, advanced you get, the more longer the points are, are and the more that there, the more um, that there's going on in these points. I think you could probably relate that to tennis too, for those of us that are trying to, you know, learn more about squash. And to the point of the points, is there a time limit or are you playing to a certain point total? You are playing to 11 points. That's one game. And the first person to get three games wins the match. So your career in squash, what's your origin story? How did you get exposed to the sport? Uh, what, where did it all start for you? Yeah. Um, so my parents were big players, um, in the, you know, this Philadelphia area, um, my dad would take my brother and I to his league matches, you know, there, he would, um, have matches, um, in the evenings. And I remember we would just, he'd pick up McDonald's for us on the way. And then we'd just sit in the, you know, gallery eating. And as he played his league match, um, and it was just that way for a long time, we, we were just exposed to it at a really 
young age. And then we got into it more seriously um, when, you know, we were in elementary school and, and middle school, you know, we were playing all kinds of sports, but we were, um, you know, also playing a lot of squash just because it was, because we got exposed to it. Um, and, and then, um, you know, I started to do a lot of clinics and one-on-one lessons and, and then started doing ju- junior tournaments, um, which is junior just refers to, you know, players under 18. So a lot of tournaments in the area and then tournaments in Boston and New York and Baltimore and, and just kind of, um, playing as much as, as I could, because I really did uh, fall in love with the game at a, at a young age. So just being exposed to it by my um, family and then um, having access to courts um, was, was how it all happened. Were you really good right away or did you fall in love with the sport and then the special ability developed, or I guess it's kind of a chicken egg question. You you obviously understood the sport watching, you know, parents, were you really good at first or was the fact that you were exposed to it led you to interest it? And then the more you played it, you got really good. Yeah. You know, I really loved the game and I loved hitting a ball and I loved everything about learning. Uh, I wanted to perfect my swing and I wanted to, uh, there's a social element too. You know, I was playing with kids my age and going to these clinics and um, I loved getting the one-on-one um, from coaches and, um, you know, I, I didn't realize I was decent until college. <laughs> so um, I was just focused on, you know, wanting to just getting better and um, really just perfecting it as much as I could, the tactics of it, the technical side of it. Um, and, I, you know, I wasn't um, really thinking about the other side of it as much um, because I was just folk. I was just so fixated on getting good. And I lost a lot when I was young. Absolutely. Um, Cause it is such a mental game and a lot of people, what I've noticed is a lot of adults um, who, who get, who start it, um, or college kids who start it, they have this learning curve of getting used to playing with um, no other teammates to rely on and having to make very quick decisions um, over and over and over and being able to respond emotionally in the right way when things don't go well. So it's such a mental game. And no matter where you started as a, as a kid, as an adult, um, there's a huge learning curve with the mental side of it. So I think I was dealing with that and being really hard on myself and, um, you know, not having, uh, you know, the confidence. So I, I was not winning when I was a kid. Um, and then, you know, maybe seeing a little bit of results here and there, but I really loved the game so, so much that I just always went back the next day to, to keep working on it. I was listening to an interview you did somewhere else. Did you have a brother that you played with a lot growing up? Yes. Yes. Um, I have two brothers and my older brother, um, was also really into squash. So, you know, he was my partner when we would, you know, be practicing, um, during the week and weekends. And, um, you know, obviously our family would all go to tournaments and that sort of stuff. And then also he was the number one at Bowdoin, um, when I was looking at, at colleges and I ended up at the same place. So we also ended up kind of playing alongside each other there also. How much did that help, you know, whether it's a, a sibling rivalry in a, you're beating each other or just the relationship pushes you, you know, uh, from a competitive standpoint, not against so much maybe him as just having someone to always measure yourself against. How much was that? How big was that in your development as a player? That's, that's a a cool question. I think that, um, my brother and I, I played with my dad a lot, you know, my younger brother and mom would, um, jump in too sometimes, but I think having that relationship, you know, in this, um, case with my brother, we both just, um, it was never contentious. 
And, you know, he's two years older than me and he's a guy and I'm a girl, so he's going to beat me. And, you know, when there were moments that I, you know, beat him, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't contentious. It We both just wanted to, we were very lucky to have um, guidance um, to play with sportsmanship and, and always have, you know, just that mindset of generous play towards your opponent and um, it, it definitely played a role in that I had a partner all the time. Um, I hit a lot by myself, uh, because you really do need to hit, be on court on your own a lot to, like I said earlier, fix your swing and, and master certain mechanics, but it was great to have a partner all the time. And we both just were very serious when we were playing, drilling, competing, um, very serious about getting better and focusing on, did we get, you know, a little bit, a little bit better? Did this work? Did this not? Um, and, and so I think that that, um, really helped us prevent burnout and just continue to love the game and what it brought out, um, in us. You went to Radnor high school. Am I correct? Yes. Yes, I did. Was there a squash team there? At like a Radnor High squash team? Right. So there was not. There is a team there now. A lot of um, public schools are creating squash programs, which is such good news. That needs to be happening so that more kids are exposed to the sport. But at the time, um, you know, Radnor was very big um, in sports in general. And I played lacrosse there and I played soccer there. And I was very serious about those sports. But I just during the winter, I went, you know, after school, I went right over the, to the club and I squash club and I was there till the evening and I was just there hitting, playing uh, with partners or by myself and maybe, you know, doing homework outside of the, the courts if I didn't do that when I got home. But we really um, we went to school. We went to school and then we went to the club after every day to hit. How, how difficult was the because I mean, when if there's a school team, you know, there's a structure, you're, you know, you go out for the team, this team plays these seven surrounding schools. And if you're the champion, uh, was, was it hard to find competition at that level where you would be a part of a club team, stuff like that? And also, you know, the sport wasn't as popular then as it is now. Was that a challenge for you and your parents to find pipelines to play from a competitive standpoint? You know, it wasn't because um, the club scene is so much bigger than the um, school scene, or at least it was. The club squash scene was way bigger. So most people were in that boat. So, you know, there were kids at from three o'clock until eight o'clock going to their, their squash and fitness club, um, Monday through Friday. And then those clubs would host junior events. So they would, um, host tournaments. And so all the kids in that in Philly are going to the same five clubs every, you know, every weekend, or we're all going to the one in Boston, or there's, there's a couple in, you know, this city this weekend. So that, club squash scene was, was bigger. So, um, in fact, even nowadays kids who play at schools, they sometimes miss out on the junior events because they have squash practice at school. So it's actually kind of the opposite of, um, what you might've been thinking. Hopefully we can get just a nice, healthy balance where schools offer it and there's programs are really serious. And then, you know, kids can go to their clubs in the, on the weekends or, or in the afternoons to, to get more one-on-one with, you know, um, teaching pros. Um, so that, that actually, we were very, we and my, my brother and I, and all the kids in this area hit it playing. Um, we were lucky because squash is pretty big in Philly, which might sound surprising to some listeners, but it's, you know, one of those sports where when, when you do figure it out, then you, then you are in that community and it's, it's everywhere. So, um, squash was very big in Philly and now it's going to be even bigger now that the, um, the U S national center is right, um, downtown on what 30 between 34th and 33rd on, um, on market. So there's a huge public national center there now. 
um, anybody listening, please go check it out. Um, you can walk in and, um, and learn about the game and, and try it out. Um, but so, so Philly is getting, um, even bigger and, um, with squash. And at the time I was lucky that there was a lot of clubs in this area offering those junior events every weekend all year. Now that's really interesting because it's almost it seems sounds to me it's kind of like the bizarro college basketball and the idea that the AAU is the thing that was really established. It's the school leagues that were trying to fight for position and trying to get the athletes to that's really that's really interesting. Yeah, hundred percent. Sounds exactly um like that. And and you know, hopefully we can really get some, you know, some more balance. Um so yeah, it's, I think, uh, it's, it's been great. It was great to have that. And, and I think that we can keep that, keep that going. Cause those clubs continue They're They're still booming, you know, they're holding events all the time. So you mentioned earlier, your brother went to Bowdoin, you went to, to, to Bowdoin was, were you sold through his experience? Were there other schools that you looked at Were you recruited a lot? Were there like, were you recruited from a squash standpoint where did, did other schools come along and say, we'd like you to play first kind of what was that journey like? Yeah. Um, so my brother ended up at Bowdoin and he was two years ahead of me. And I thought there's no way that I'm going to the same school as my brother. So I looked around at other schools and visited other schools, did overnights at other schools. And, um, and you know, we, it got to the point where um, Bowdoin was, I was very serious about it. So I called him up. Um, he was at school up in Maine and I was down here and I called him and I said, you got to be honest with me right now. What would, what would you think if I, you know, matriculated at both? And he was like, you got to come, you got to come. It's going to be so much fun. We're going to have like the two teams, you know, cause he was going to be on the men's team. I would be on the women's teams. Like we bring the teams together. We'd have so much fun. We could train. You got to do it. So that's sort of how that happened. Um, and then I, you know, in the years later, I remember thinking, oh, you know, all I've done is follow my brother's footsteps and I just keep copying him. And, and I was talking to, you know, a, a family member who, who said, you know, it's actually not that it's just you two are very similar and you have similar interests. And so I think we were the same aspects of Bowdoin were appealing to both of us. And so it's sort of, I think, because we are similar in a lot of ways, um, that's sort of why that happened. And Bowdoin's up in Maine, correct? Yes. Yes. It's in Portland, Maine, which is right um, after the border of New Hampshire, right near the beach. So you had mentioned how you had traveled for tournaments and stuff like that. But, you know, Maine's far away. It's probably, what, nine hours by car, nine-ish in that ballpark. Uh, how'd you do? I mean, your brother's there, obviously that helps a lot with the transition, but you know, how, you know, at first, how, how was it going to college that far away? It was great. I wanted to be somewhere new and I got that. So it was really fun. I met all kinds of new people and I was in this beautifully green environment with, you know, mountains, not not far and water, not far and uh, just an amazing academic environment. It was, it was a blast. It was a lot of fun. You had mentioned earlier that, and and correct me if I'm paraphrasing incorrectly, that it wasn't until college, you kind of realized your, where your talent level was. I'm curious, what is that like? If you are don't have an awareness that you're special at a sport and then you come to a pretty high level. And I would imagine you're beating a lot of people. Did it seem natural? Was it, Oh my God, this is awesome. Like that seems to be an interesting place to be kind of mentally in a sport where you don't quite realize the strength of your powers. I appreciate that question. Uh, no, it was not natural. Um, I um, just was so not, uh, I just did not like being in the spotlight. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, of course, it's nice when you get some pats on the back and that sort of thing. Um, it, it definitely was just really good for my confidence. Um, 
to to help me realize, you know, I, my work has paid off and, um, you know, I, I could do even more than, than what I've been doing. So yeah, no, it was, it was not natural. Um, but it was really good for me as an individual to kind of get comfortable in that kind of role. Um, you know, as a first year being number one, and then, you know, you have to play the number ones who were probably, you know, seniors at, um, you know, these other Ivy leagues or other new England, um, teams in our conference, like Amherst, Williams, Bates, you want to be tested to see how, um, you know, if your work is paying off and what you, what you need to continue to work on. So it was really good for me to kind of be in an, in that situation, just as far as giving myself some credit. <laughs> but I guess it also, it works in your favor from, and not to say you don't have an outstanding work ethic, but you constantly probably still feel like you're, you have to keep battling, keep grinding and you're, you're not in that headspace where you think, oh, well, I got this one. I'm going to be, you know, I'm just better than this person. I've seen them play like you're constantly working. So you've got this high level of talent slash achievement, but not having rested on it, you're constantly pushing. Am I making sense in, in what I'm trying Absolutely. to get across? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I just, um, that's nice of you to say. I, I think that that's just sort of, um, yeah, that's, that's what I focus on. I just have, I've always, even though now I'm not playing competitively, I'm still, I still see myself as a student of the game. And I just, I have so much to learn. The game is always changing and I, I have so much to learn about it. And that goes for, you know, our teams as well here at Haverford. Of course, we're, we're all students of the game. Um, and um, it's, I, you know, never, never, it never being enough is, um, I think just where I'm always at, you know, I, I, um, there's just so much more in the, to the game than I know. And I think that, that hunger is what can help people really, um, just get a lot better than they thought they could have and not being complacent. You had so much success at college. You're all over the record book. When you look back at your time as a squash player in college, whether it's, you know, specific matches or just moments, you know, with the team playing with your brother the first couple of years, what's kind of the depth chart of your college squash memories? There are a lot of really good memories. When you ask that question, I think of, you know, the, the Bowdoin, the Lubin squash center and, and just having those moments after training, uh, you know, just hanging around with the team and stretching and cooling down and, you know, laughing and knowing that, you know, um, just having really good friends around me, um, with those common interests, you know, I think that's, that's always, um, thinking about those moments are highlights. And, um, you know, also I have moments of, I, I had this one match when I was a first year and the men's and women's teams traveled together, which they usually do. And I was, um, just playing a incredibly close, um, exciting match against a rival. And I just remember I was so focused on my tactics and what I needed to be doing, but I remember being like, pleasantly distracted by the like roaring Bowdoin crowd behind me. Um, and, you know, I was a first year, so I was just trying to, you know, do my best and perform for the team and just seeing them, the men's team and the women's team, just standing and cheering after winning specific points was um, really humbling and, and definitely just something that pops into my mind when, um, you mentioned that. So I think, you know, to answer that, that question, I have specific moments in matches where I feel like the team is behind me, but also just moments in general that are about, you know, being a part of a team. And yes, squash is an individual sport, but it it became so much more fulfilling when I played for a team and when I had all of these people with me, um, all of us trying to play for the same school and, um, perform well for one thing much bigger than, um, any of us individuals. And that's something that I find extremely fulfilling as a coach now too, 
Um, so I, I think really it comes down to the team, the team aspect of, of my time at Bowdoin. After Bowdoin, you continued to play. You played professionally for several years. And for people who aren't familiar, what does that mean? I think when people hear professional, they think, oh, well, there must be a team in Philadelphia. There was a team in Boston. I get the idea. Is it more kind of your individual, you're a pro as an individual and you're competing in tournaments and all, please correct me if I'm not giving the proper you're context, exactly right. but what is that, kind of explain what it's like. Yeah, you're exactly right. It is an individual um, endeavor. Um, you play for your country, um, but you are traveling around um, the world and you're playing, um, you're following the, the squash, the pro squash calendar. So there's a calendar year round and there's specific huge tournaments and um, certain tiered tournaments, smaller tier, tiered, you know, medium tiered and large tiered tournaments throughout the calendar. And um, you are, um, most people have a coach. I did not have a coach when I was playing pro. Um, I was figuring out, figuring it out on my own, but um, you know, coaches usually determine which of the tournaments you're going to do in the calendar. And you, so you you know, you might travel to, Australia and play three weekends in a row in Brisbane and Melbourne and then Sydney. And then you'll travel to a different country and play uh, the tournaments, the string of tournaments that are in that country. And they do do that, um, you know, intentionally so that it makes sense for players to, to come to come to that event and play in several events. Um, you know, I, I wasn't, um, I didn't do it for very long, but that is, um, that is essentially how it works. And you, you train and you, then you prepare for tournaments and then you go to, um, a tournament and, and compete, and then you get ready for the next one. And obviously there's different aspects of the calendar year where there's less tournaments. So, so there's less, um, you know, there's certain aspects of your training that you're doing less or more of, and then there's more of the, the busier time. Um, so that is sort of how it works and you're based somewhere. So you might be, you know, I was based in Philly and there were a lot of pros in this area, um, working as teaching pros at a club, you know, doing the one-on-one thing, funding their travel through that. Um, so pros might be based somewhere, like they might go to a city in Europe for six months and be based there because there's a lot of partners to train with in that area. And then they might bop around throughout the year just to get that training and to play in specific events. Time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with Haverford College head squash coach, Nikki Clement, right after this. And we are back. Our guest this week is Haverford College squash coach, Nikki Clement. So you said you didn't have a coach. When you make the decision, first of all, was it an easy decision? Was it something that you were like, I want to try this. No question about it. Was it something that somebody mentioned to you, talked to you and you found intriguing and, and came around uh, and without a coach kind of, how'd you get started? Cause that, that would seem overwhelming to me. <laughs> you know, you're talking about all this travel, these tournaments, figuring out what te- what tournament tier I should plug into and what yeah. that's, I, I can only imagine, you know, at 22, yeah. 23, without a coach who kind of let somebody had to kind of introduce you, lead you, who, who was that person? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so initially someone had mentioned to me, you know, you should, you should try pro very casually. You should try going, going pro. And I thought, you know what, that sounds interesting. Um, because I could, one thing that, you know, I, I, have alluded to it already, um, which is a a big part of my squash um, passion is I just, you know, I wanted to see how good I could get. Um, And so I, I guess I started talking about it with my dad and then he found, um, so there's this woman named Liz Irving. She is one of the best coaches um, in the world. She was the coach of the, um, number one in the world, Nicole David from Malaysia um, and Liz Irving. She, she was a former pro herself, number two in the world. And then she became a pro for a a coach for pros. And she, um, she, she was full-time working with Nicole, 
but she also would take in pros for several weeks at a time and kind of work with them and then send them on their way. Um, and she was based in Amsterdam and she had this, um, situation in, in Amsterdam. So, um, I, I don't, I think my dad had met Liz at some squash event or something. And he, he basically got me in touch with her and I just went there. <laughs> I just went to Amsterdam and then I was there for seven weeks, I think. And I was just a sponge. I learned everything I could. I wrote down everything that was said to me and I learned how to train. I learned what a training plan looks like and what you need in it and, and those sorts of things. And so then I, you know, ran out of money. So I came back to Philly and then I did that plan and I just figured it out that way. I, I'm not sure I, you know, I'm sure I would have had a lot more success if I had had some guidance, especially because I did tend to be someone who overtrained. Um, and I didn't realize that until later that I was overtraining. Um, but that Liz Irving, she is one of, she is the best coach I, you know, I've ever spent time with. And a lot of people, um, feel that way. Um, she, she really just, um, set me up in that way and taught me a lot more than just, um, you know, how to hit the ball properly. Because even at that point, I was still learning how to swing properly because that's how amazing squash is. You know, the better you get, you still need to work on your swing a little bit. You, you know, the, there's this aspect of your backswing or your wrist or your positioning. And, and that is why squash is, is so addicting to those who play it, because it's it's con you're constantly um, working on getting getting better. You've dropped names of, you know several really cool places that you went and played. Do you have a ballpark? How many countries you've played in or how many countries you played in during your pro career? Um, not, you know, not that many. I, I only, I only played for two years. I wasn't planning on it just being two years, but I got injured and then I, you know, um, got distracted by the, appeal of the Haverford squash position that I heard about, but, um, maybe 10, 15, really not that many. I, I did a lot of cities in, you know, one country, um, yeah, 10, 15, maybe something like that. A lot of central Europe, Western Europe, um, Central America mainly. What was your favorite place? What's the favorite, the coolest place that you, yeah played that you got to spend time to, to play squash. Like, yeah. Is there any place that you're like, even to this day, I can't believe I got to spend three weeks there or whatever the, the length of time was. Definitely. That would be Melbourne, Australia. Um, for a lot of reasons, the people are awesome. They are so kind and generous and happy. Um, so the people made a huge difference. The people that I would, you know, was spending time with and, traveling with and training with. Um, and the city itself is, it's beautiful and unique and, um, it's very, it has a, a, a big, um, art and music influence and it's, um, it's, um, exciting and thrilling and the food is delicious. Um, I, I definitely felt that way when I was there. I can't believe I'm here. This is so fun. And I, you know, have always, you know, and, and those players that I, that I met there, they're still saying to me, Hey, when are you going to come back and visit? You know, there's such cool people there. They, they're so welcoming and um, you know, you're always invited back, which is just pretty cool. At the other end of the spectrum. Cause I talk to a lot of specifically basketball players who go overseas to play and they'll yeah. have a lot of great stories. But then they'll also have places they play where, well, I had to get out before the government fell or, you know, uh, I had to make sure I got to the bank by four o'clock because we only we knew the only the first six checks were going to cash from this team, you know, stuff like that. Was there anything at the other end of the spectrum that was a little maybe not scary, but just like, ah, this is nice, but I'm not coming back here? Not not really. I mean, I think I was just so excited to be in new places and see what they had to offer. They meaning the people and the the city and the club that I was training at. And I mean, not really. I just, every single place was super cool and different. And 
Um, I, no, I don't think so. I just was so excited about every opportunity that was there. Um, and, you know, I think, I think I really did go to some great places. So, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned the injury after a couple of years. Uh, what, was it something you thought was going to be a crossroads injury, but you mentioned the Haverford yeah. position. Was it kind of the marriage of you get hurt and, oh, here's a way I could stay in squash and this is intriguing to me? Kind of where yeah, how'd so that come together? Definitely. So when I was in college, I interned for the athletic director. And I remember thinking um, maybe athletic administration in the D3 level is is the thing for me. So I had thought that maybe that was something that I would get to anyway. And I had done, all I did was Google athletic directors and read their bios. And they all, at the time, um, all they, all of them had a similar formula, which is you start out as a coach and then you start to get involved in the administrative side of the department and that sort of thing. So I already had that in my head. Um, and I thought, you know, and I had had such a good time as a team um, member in my college experience that I, already had that in my head. Um, but I wanted to try out pro. So I was playing pro and, you know, the way that I described that injury made it sound like it was ominous. It was harmless. It was plantar fasciitis and it was so, so bad. I had ignored it so for so long that I finally just couldn't walk. And so I thought, okay, I guess I have to handle this. So, um, all, I mean, anybody who has plantar fasciitis knows you have to do rigorous PT. If you really want to get rid of it, you have to do PT all day long. So I was just doing PT. I think I had already um, done a season of at Haverford, um, as the head coach. And I was sort of trying to play pro at the same time. And it was very, you just cannot do two full-time things and and um, one of them kind of had to um, give way and and I was um, you know not doing that many tournaments and and that sort of thing and so I was rehabbing um, while I, it was two or three months that I was rehabbing and I realized being away I obviously couldn't hit at that time and I had realized um, that I really missed the game in a way that I had not in a really long time because when I had started playing pro I had gotten intense to the point that I was, um, miss, uh, my priorities had gotten out of line and I, you know, I wanted to do well and results mattered and I had to play perfectly. And this training session had to be perfect and nobody is perfect. So the minute it was not perfect, I would get, you know, frustrated with myself. And so I was dealing with some overtraining and, um, perspective struggles when I was in the heat of, Pro, playing pro. And again, if you have a coach, I think that that would have, they would have caught that early and it wouldn't have happened, but I was just, you know, trying to figure it out. So, so when I had to sit and not play, I remembered how much I loved squash. I had forgotten. And I remembered how much I loved squash. And I thought, wow, I did not balance this right with, with pro. And so when I finally was able to start hitting again, I was so happy to be on court. And I realized, you know, I, I do probably want to get back to playing pro, but, but not yet because I'm really enjoying um, what I'm doing at Haverford and I, I got to be smart about the way I approach it again. And I just kind of thought about that. And for the next couple of years, people would ask me, oh, are you going to, you know, join the circuit again? Are you going to join the pro circuit again? And I would have like a, a, a twinge of like sadness because I wanted to, but I also was like, I'm just not sure um, that I can. And it sort of just then sort of did not become the priority that it was. And so, so it sort of happened that way. I, I sort of um, would, be interested, you know, at the time and of course, probably still now I'd be curious about joining the tour that would not work out right now. But, um, you know, I, of course, think about that stuff and was thinking about it, but it just sort of naturally is sort of really loving 
what I was doing with the teams. And, you know, I, I'd love to try pro again, but I'm really interested in what I'm doing at Haverford right now. So we'll see. And that's sort of how that happened. How specifically the door at Haverford? What was the connection that, you know, the that brought you in the door at Haverford? Right. So I grew up in the area. I grew up a couple miles from Haverford. Um, and I never really... Um, you know, I did, I ran the nature trail when I was younger and stuff like that. And my great grandfather and grandfather went here. Um, so I always knew about it and everything, but the coach at the time, the, the coach of the Haverford squash team, and it was a part-time position. That coach was coaching men's tennis and men's and women's squash. So it was very um, much a, he just couldn't prioritize it. Um, and, but he had said, you know, he was thinking of retiring and he had reached out to me and he said, you should look at this position because he had known me from junior, uh, from college. Um, so that's sort of how that happened. He had suggested it. And then I realized, um, especially after a year or two at Haverford working with the players there, I realized that what have, um, you know, the squash program and the students here, what they, um, prioritized and what they cared about was directly in line with what I prioritized and cared about. So, um, it was a little bit fortuitous in that way too. And this is 2010 ish. Yes. And you get the, your head coach of the men and the women both at the, from the jump, correct? Correct. What kind of challenge is that? Because I mean, you could probably argue it's kind of all one program, but it's, two separate programs, two separate schedules, two separate rosters. Was that a lot at first or did it, I'm sure it's still a lot now, but I mean, I would imagine at first that could seem almost overwhelming. It's a lot. It was a lot, but I didn't really think of, I just didn't think about that. I was just grinding, I guess. And I really loved and still love both programs um both of that both programs offer different things and um to to me as a coach but you know it it um i think also at the time not not as much it's still happening a bit but when i was in college a lot of squash coaches and tennis coaches were dual coaches so they would coach the men's and the women's programs yes it's a lot um i feel like a lot of the times i'm just doing things times two and that's okay because I, I enjoy it. And, and yeah, I mean, it, it is a lot, but I do get a lot from, from both programs. So I guess I like being really busy. Is it something that you're able for the most part that the tasks you have to do mirror each other? You just have to do them twice. If that makes sense. Like you have to, you're just double the workload or are there, challenges and things that are specific to the men's team or specific to the women's team that don't overlap? Yeah, I think there is a lot of things that do overlap. And so I'm not actually doing everything times two, but a lot of things um, I can, a lot of tasks or scheduling and, um, you know, all a lot of admin stuff um, ends up being, I'm able to do both uh, cover the needs of both teams at once. Um, but you know, to answer your question a little that you mentioned a second ago, um, they, I think that some coaches who are dual coaches could kind of see it as one program and kind of have their, um, program function as one, but I sort of guess that I sort of, um, see them as two different programs because they're two different teams and they have different, we have different practices and different, um, entirely different group dynamics in, in each. So, um, it, there, there is a lot of overlap, but there are kind of the, dis, the, the aspects of what make differentiate the two teams are probably what make it interesting. Also. Are there any challenges being a woman coaching a men's team? We see a lot of men that coach women's teams in sports across having a woman coach a men's team. It seems like it is more it happens more in squash maybe than you see in a lot of other sports, but does it present any challenges? I, um, you know, not really, I don't really see that, um, 
kind of thing as a, I mean, I guess maybe, but I think I have different challenges with the, with coaching women. You know, I think that coaching an individual, um, regardless of gender is not that different. Coaching a group of men is, and coaching a group of women, that's probably different, like a group together and how just men and women communicate, um, and how they function and, you know, non-verbally kind of, um, work together or, or whatever. Um, so I think there's differences, but I, I think I've been very lucky that when I came to Haverford, the, the men's team was, they just wanted to get good. That's what mattered. They wanted to get good. And, um, I wanted to help them get good. And that's what it was about. It was just not about that. It's just not really a thought. It's not really relevant at all. You know, it's just the, we're, we're working on getting good at this craft and that's what it's about. Time for another break on one-on-one. We will have more with Haverford College men's and women's squash head coach, Nikki Clement, right after this. And we are back. Our guest on one-on-one this week is Haverford College head men's and women's squash coach, Nikki Clement. I'm curious. Do you think your relationship with your brother and your squash and when I say relationship, I mean like your squash relationship. Do you think that has helped make it seem like this is just life and I'm coaching you, I coach this team, we're playing squash? Because it would seem like you have a, a connection that makes that dynamic seem much more like this is not anything out of the unusual. Do you ever ever thought about that? That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I, I think like with most sports and it's, you know, getting better and better as time goes on. But when I was younger, like most sports, there were more men playing than women or more boys playing than more girls. So a lot of my clinics when I was young were like 80% boys. And like, I was the only girl. Um, so I was definitely used to that. And then you're right. Playing with my dad and playing with my brother constantly um, played a role for sure. And, you know, I remember at Bowdoin, I had like, a, uh, I just remember this moment I was, you know, with, um, there had been a training session and we were all just, um, stretching after practice. And I remember thinking like, I'm the only girl here. And that's so normal. Like I had never noticed it before until that moment. I was like, this is how it always is. And that's interesting. It was just an observation. (laughs) Um, and yeah, so, so I think maybe that some of that stuff did, um, play role is to, you know, it's about the game and it's really not about anything else. How much of a challenge is it? Because the seasons go on simultaneously, correct? The men's season and the, the yes. women's season. How much of a challenge is it for you as a coach? Men are doing well, women aren't. Or women are doing well, men aren't. Men are disappointing, women are over, the women's team's overachieving. How difficult is it for you to balance the type of coach you need to be, you know, with these two separate teams going on simultaneously. I mean, sure. It'd be great if they were both chasing championships at the same time. And, but that's not probably realistic. So you have to be maybe coach a to make sure these, this group's in the right headspace, but you need to take a different approach with these kids who maybe are excelling at the moment. And you just kind of have to make sure that that continues. Yeah. I mean, both teams are always doing so well. I've got to say that I've been here for a long time and I just, am so, so lucky with the group of kids that I get every year, every year I have moments in practice and I'm like, can't believe we got these people. They are so great. And that's the case on both sides. I think that question, when you ask that question, it makes me think more of like recruiting. I, I feel like if I'm focused on recruiting women, then sometimes I neglect a little bit of recruiting for the men. And then I've been recruiting for the men a little bit, and then I've neglected a little bit. So that's where I feel kind of that seesaw, um, feeling. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know, I guess, as far as the question regarding coaching, I think I just so used to separating them completely. I don't really compare them. I'm focused on the women's team when I'm with the women's team and what we need to do. And then I'm focused on the men's team and what they need to do. How long did it take you to find your pace just from a logistics time management standpoint when dealing with 
two different teams. I mean, was that a was that something tough that you know you had to you know balance that kind of stuff, or did it just kind of come natural and you found your workflow pretty easily? Yeah, it was natural. I think I um, I think I just tend to I had those habits already. I had the um, habits of doing making the best of your time. I'm not great at it all the time. But, um, you know, I have, I think I just built those skills in, you know, at a young age, being really busy in high school playing, you know, multiple sports and being serious about multiple sports, but also having to do well on this paper that I have to turn in. And, you know, so maybe just building those skills earlier and then having needing them in college and then, um, you know, needing them ever since. I think, I think I, pro- I probably had some of those habits from um, just from earlier in my life. You've had a lot of so much success at Haverford on both sides. I kind of, kind of the question I asked you about your college days, and obviously you're still in the midst of your coaching, but to this point, if I asked you what's at the top of your favorite memories, most proud achievements as the coach at Haverford, what would, what would be at the top of the list? There are so many, there are so many great memories and they're not always, you know, titles and um, accolades and those sort of things, but like small moments. I mean, this is, this sounds so obscure, but when you ask that question, the first thing that I thought of was, you know, one time we were playing a team that we were very close with in in level and um, our number one was playing. So there's nine in college squash. There are nine matches that count towards the um, final score. So you have a number one through to a number nine, and those matches count um, towards the score. But you have additional players, of course. Um, you have a 10, 11, 12, 13, however big your however big your roster is. And um, we had our number one playing. Um, and we also, it was the end of the match. Um, I honestly don't even remember if we had won or lost just because I can't remember. I think it was really, really close and we had won and everyone was in such a great mood. Um, or maybe we were, we weren't, we hadn't won yet. I, I just can't remember, but our number one was on. And a lot of time, the number one, it gets a lot of fans and people want to watch the number one and that sort of thing. Um, so the number one was playing, but the number 11 um, was also playing because sometimes the, the 10, the 11, they get um, exhibition matches if we have time. Um, I think tennis does that as well. I, I'm not sure actually, but squash just kind of, if we have the court space and the time, we try to get those extra matches in so that those other kids get ma- get matches. So our number one was playing and everybody's, you know, watching and cheering and, and our number 11 was playing right next door at a, um, you know, at the court next door. And I had noticed that 50% of our team was watching the one and 50% of our team was watching and cheering on the 11. And it, I hadn't had to, it was, I was just so um, proud because that is such a, um, in, I think that is what our team has always been about. Um, It doesn't matter what number you play, your match matters. Your match matters to us. And we want you to have a great um, experience and we want you to play really well and see if you can, in your match, do some of the things we've been working on. And I didn't even have to say, you know, anything. 50% of the team really wanted to see how the 11 was doing. 50% wanted to see how the one was doing. So it's a, it's not exactly what you asked, but that is something that I was really proud of, um, And, you know, moments like that, just seeing, you know, two players, you know, I'm thinking of two players who butted heads their first year, freshman, first year when they were first years, they, they had nothing in common. They did not get along by their senior year. They were really good friends, not because either of them had changed any aspect of their personality. They had found common ground through the game, through squash. And now I know that they're, they're alums and they're really, they're really good friends. And, those are the kinds of moments that I am um, so proud to be a part of, to have witnessed and to have seen. So, um, yes, of course, when we won, 
titles for the women's team when we won our division for the women's side and when we won our division for the men's side both times. Those are such awesome memories. Um, but some of these other ones are are make me feel the same way. When it comes, and I don't mean this directly to you, but the squash community as a whole, when it comes to growing the game, you mentioned the the Philadelphia, uh, the center yeah. that's in Philadelphia. What are the hurdles to getting squash to more people, um, to to opening more doors? Because uh, I would think there are some challenges for some communities when it comes to access, maybe, you know, being able to pay, I mean, pay to yep. not pay to play, yep. but the, the opportunities, uh, what are some of the challenges and how do those get, start to get re- remedied? Yeah. Thank you so much for that question. Um, because it's important. Squash has to be accessible to more people. It's changing more and more as time goes on. But when I was, you know, in high school, there weren't that many public courts. Um, there were a lot of private clubs that had squash programs and they were expensive to be a part of. And so there wasn't a lot of opportunity for socioeconomic diversity and access to courts. And um, it, it's, it's really changed. There's been these, there's this incredible um, urban mentoring um, structure that a lot of squash communities have created where they create a, you know, they get the funding for a squash facility or they, um, you know, have access to a club and they bring in um, students from middle school from different lower socioeconomic status uh, statuses and they bring them in and they to give them mentoring on the court and um, tutoring in school. And that is starting kids in middle school um, is allows them to have opportunities to play in college. Um, so that is, you know, there's all kinds of the one in Philly is called um, Squash Smarts. And there are all kinds of um, urban mentoring programs around the country that are popping up all the time. So those are huge. And those are um, just such wonderful things for the sport. Um, But it needs to be accessible. I know that, you know, Manhattan had had somewhere in Manhattan. I haven't been to it, but uh, there is a public court outside and you can just go on it. I mean, I know that's the case with with a sport like basketball um and it would be incredible if that were the case for squash um so it there is an endeavor to really um build public courts and to just have them around and um where people can just kind of walk on and it's really only this country where um squash in its history has not been as access as accessible, but it really is getting better. The last 20 years, it's really, really, um, gotten better. So, you know, we need public courts around. Um, and like I said, there's, um, more and more of those popping up all the time. And my final question, all you've accomplished in squash player, coach, Haverford around the world. I asked you kind of your favorite memory, but what are you most proud of? Everything you've done, the people you've mentored, everything you've coached, right at the top. What are you most proud of? Um, I am uh, – that's tough. I don't know what's at the top, Matt, but there's a couple things kind of bobbing around at the the top um, I, I that I'm most proud of. When I think of Haverford, I think of the squash alumni – network and how big that has become um, and how there is such a huge camaraderie between the players who currently play and then leave Haverford and go on and live their lives, but stay connected and come back every year for our alumni match and have, you know, group texts going on all day, all year long and just having, you know, I'm, I feel um, proud that, um, the Haverford squash community has um, just exponentially grown into what it is. Um, People that are passionate about it still call Haverford home, even if they've graduated um, years ago. Um, That's, that's something I'm proud of. Um, I think, I honestly think that's probably what it would be. Nikki Clement. Thanks so much for taking the time. Hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. I really did, Matt. Thanks so much. 
And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank Nikki Clement, the head men's and women's squash coach at Haverford College, for being our guest this week. Now, if you like the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, you could do us a big favor by leaving us a rating and a review. Now, you can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to join us again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.